with the most Jordan Costley and welcome to Minority Minds. This podcast is aimed to talk about the minority experience at Hood College and just general information that may be important to hear about if you're a minority and also any allies within the community of creating better information and quality information regarding people's experiences that identify as minorities. Um, Wow, it's been a while since I've done one of these, but I have a reason. This semester, I was able to take advantage of doing an independent study, and it's been such an amazing experience, and I wanted to share with my listeners what I've learned. My independent study was actually on maternal mortality in America. But before I get started with some information, here's what I'm going to talk about today. So I'm going to talk a little bit about what is maternal mortality, why it is a problem, What are some resources? And then I also have a special guest with me today that I had a conversation with regarding maternal mortality that I think is important to hear about regarding what I'm going to talk about today. So let's get rolling. What is maternal mortality? Maternal mortality is the death of a pregnant person during pregnancy, birth, or weeks after birth. I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Hi everyone, my name is Yawande Oladende and I am a public health professional. I am a resident of Frederick County, Maryland, and I also have the pleasure of teaching public health courses at Hood College in Frederick, Maryland, and I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today. So can you tell me a little bit about how you got into public health? So my degree was actually in biobehavioral health. And that is a mouthful, but it's really about, you know, an interdisciplinary program where I got exposed to public health, to the social sciences, and global health. And that was actually what my PhD was. Um, And as a result of that and some of the global health work I did around HIV prevention, and in particular um, around, you know, understanding the childbearing decision-making process of women living with HIV um, in South Africa and in Nigeria, that really got me interested not only in the maternal health space, but also um, in public health, and I've been hooked ever since then. Wow, that is really cool to just hear about how you got into your journey of not only public health, but also the maternal health field in general, learning about the HIVs within the in certain communities. What is maternal mortality? Maternal mortality is the death of a pregnant person during pregnancy, birth, or weeks after birth. My first question for you today is: What is the main miscon? What is one of the main misconceptions about maternal mortality versus maternal morbidity? Thank you for that question, and I'm glad you asked. Um, that's a great question because what I find out is that many times. People use um, the two terms interchangeably, and they really should not, because uh, maternal mortality is really what that describes is death. When we say mortality, mortality refers to death. So death of a woman from um, complications during pregnancy or childbirth. And usually when we talk about maternal mortality, 
that usually occurs either when a woman is pregnant or within six weeks after you know the pregnancy ends so whether the pregnancy ends in a live birth or a stillbirth you know as long as it's within that six week six week time frame and so when I, what i want people to know is that maternal mortality is death you know death that occurs because of complications from pregnancy or during the process of childbirth within six weeks whereas when we talk about maternal morbidity morbidity on the other hand is what that describes is really some kind of you know uh, either short-term or long-term health complications that that occurs as a result of you know pregnancy or a woman giving birth so i'll give you some examples to contextualize that now same woman you know during her pregnancy a doctor diagnoses her with preeclampsia, which is basically high blood pressure during pregnancy. Now, that is uh, that's maternal mortality, right? If that preeclampsia gets resolved the moment she has the baby and her blood pressure goes back to normal, that was a case of maternal mortality, but it did not result in death, right? It was short term. So that's an example of maternal morbidity. The other thing I want to say about that is that, you know, when it comes to maternal morbidity, it often results in the woman needing additional medical care. Um, she may need to see a cardiologist. She may need to see her OBGYN during the, pro- uh, the, the, the process of her pregnancy. It may or may not result in her being hospitalized. Um, but one thing is for sure that that incident may affect the woman's quality of life. And the last thing I'll say on that, topic is that when it comes to maternal morbidity, sometimes you may hear things when women say, oh, I had a near miss, a near miss experience. And what that means is, you know, when you have a a morbid condition as a result of pregnancy or childbirth, you know, it could result in the woman almost dying, almost losing her life during pregnancy, or the woman having to have the baby early in order to to um, to survive, right? So those are two separate things. They are related, but they are two separate things. And I think it's very important to note that and to keep them separate. Why is this a problem? Black individuals are less likely to receive care in the first trimester. In 2021, 1,205 women died of maternal causes in the United States, compared to in 2019, where 745 women died of maternal causes. The maternal mortality rate in the United States is the highest it's been since 1965. Black women, unfortunately, are three times more likely than white women to die from pregnancy-related causes. And also in 2021, non-Hispanic black persons' deaths from maternal mortality was 69.9 deaths per 100,000 live births, whereas non-Hispanic white women's death per 100,000 live births was 26.6 in 2021. In 2021, the maternal mortality rate was 89% higher than the rate it was in 2014. And unfortunately, black women are also four to five times more likely to experience stillbirth than white women in the United States. So there is something called March of the Dimes. It's this report on maternal care deserts across the United States. So what is a maternal care desert? It's where there's a lack of maternal care resources, which may include no access to hospitals, birth centers, or prenatal How care. How can people better advocate for equitable maternal health? Because that's one of the things that I've realized in 
my studies for my independent study is that there isn't enough advocation or there's not enough advocation that I've been able to find of how there can be better advocation for equitable maternal health? That is a great question because, you know, it's important to know um, what one can do or what one should do um, to advocate for yourself. So either as a black woman or even as a, um, either as a black woman or even, you know, just, you know, enlightening people who may be allies in this space and trying to, you know, ensure that they're able to uh, be allies and advocate for, you know, black women. So one thing I want to say with that is, you know, it's important to really note that, and this is according to like the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, that more than 80% of pregnancy-related deaths in the U.S. today are preventable. So that should give us reason uh, for a pause because if you're telling us that if the CDC is saying that more than 80% of pregnancy-related deaths in the U.S. are preventable, then it's important that we need to know, you know, either as black women or as allies, we need to know, okay, what can we do to reduce this number to make sure that, you know, this is truly preventable and people are not dying from this. And I think we need to say within, within the backdrop that, you know, right now, you know, CDC estimates that black women are three times more likely to die from a pregnancy-related cause than a white woman. And when they say pregnancy-related cause, what they mean is that, you know, this refers to deaths that occur during pregnancy and up to one year after the pregnancy ends. So that in itself, you know, within, within the context that I just gave, I think it's important to recognize um, some of the warning signs, right? You know, there are urgent warning signs that indicate that something is going wrong um, with the body and that one needs to seek immediate medical attention. So things like, you know, during pregnancy, if a woman has like um, a headache that will not go away, you know, this persist, persistent headache, or a woman has like, you know, swelling in their hands or face or, or legs, that's a problem. Um, if they have trouble breathing during pregnancy or if they have heavy bleeding either during pregnancy or afterwards, um, you know, just being tired, those are some warning signs that it may indicate that something serious is going on and that they need um, to seek urgent medical attention. Another way that, you know, that, that everyone, I guess, women can advocate for themselves is focusing on, you know, your, your health care, even before you are ready to have children, because that's another thing that sometimes we see whereby folks may, um, you know, at the point where they want to start having children, they're like, okay, I need to, you know, get everything right. I need to make sure my health care, you know, makes sense. Everything is, you know, 100%. But even before you want to start having children, if you know that it's important for you that, you know, to have children, you want to have children, then even while you're still in college, pay attention to your health as a woman. You know, make those appointments to see your um, your gynecologist, make sure you're eating right, make sure you're exercising. You know, focusing on your health even before conception is, is very important. Knowing your numbers, knowing what your blood pressure is and things like that, controlling your stress levels. Those are some things, some ways. But also, when it comes to advocating for equitable uh, maternal health care, I think it's also a systemic effort, right? 
it's important that you know the 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 um the healthcare workforce is diversified you know having people of diverse backgrounds and experiences in healthcare when i say diverse backgrounds and experiences you know racial ethnic minority populations having you know sgm populations having people you know of diverse backgrounds you know in healthcare is important right because they're some research have shown that, you know, when there's a racial discordance, for example, of healthcare providers, racial discordance basically means, you know, not having a healthcare provider that's not of the same race and ethnicity, that does not identify as being of the same race and ethnicity as the patient. So that will be a problem. But also, I think it's not just about having a healthcare provider that looks like you. It's important, extremely important, that, you know, healthcare providers are people who are, you know, culturally congruent and really culturally humble enough to know that I don't know what I don't know. And so you as a patient, you're the expert in your care, and you need to you know, explain what values, cultural values may be important to you, what things may be important to you that I need to take into consideration as a healthcare provider and factor into your treatment plan. So, you know, I always say that it's not just about having, I'm a black woman, I identify as a black woman, it's not just about having a black healthcare provider. I could have a White, uh, someone who identifies as a white healthcare provider giving me care, but as long as they are culturally uh, congruent enough to know that I'm not that they're not the expert when it comes to um, knowing more about me, but I'm the expert and they need to listen, right? Listen to what I have to say. The other thing I would say uh, when it comes to to advocating for advocating for equitable maternal health care is, and this is really on a national level because there are so many aspects to this, you know, national paid leave, paid parental leave. You know, sometimes you see, depending on the kinds of jobs people have, you know, they may have to just go back to work like three weeks after having a baby, right, or six weeks after having a baby. And we know that that doesn't give enough time for the 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 the, the parent and the child to bond, right? Um, there are some studies that have been done out there that show that having paid parental leave actually leads to reduced um, reductions in having a low birth weight kid, reduction in having preterm birth, birth especially for um, black mothers. And then the last thing I would say is that, you know, when I talk about the total health care, not just your focusing on your reproductive health care, is really um, thinking about mental health. Because, you know, having access to not just the medical care, but also focusing on mental health care, and also the social support, those wraparound social support, for women after they have their babies, those are all things that need to be all all encompassing, you know, because we know postpartum depression is real. Um, you know, many women experience postpartum depression after they have their babies. And so being able to screen for postpartum depression and, you know, believing the women, you know, I hear sometimes when women say, you know, their healthcare provider does not believe them when they, they, they talk about having symptoms of postpartum depression. So overall, I think it's about, um, you know, listening, listening to women, not dismissing the concerns of women, healthcare providers not dismissing women's concerns, you know, providing respectful, safe, and quality maternal care before, during, and after delivery, providing timely treatment, um, recognizing the urgent warning signs, some of which I mentioned before, having a diversified healthcare workforce and having uh, healthcare providers who are culturally congruent and culturally humble 
to recognize what they do not know. And the last thing I talked about was um, mental health, having access to mental health care, wraparound social support services, and paid parental leave. Hopefully, you know, we can, the U.S. can, can take a, take uh, examples from some of the other European countries when it comes to national paid parental leave. Thank you. That was awesome. Thank you so much for that. I think that you covered so much about not only how to better advocate whether it's talking when you're thinking about if you want to ever have children or having that conversation the importance of taking care of your body taking care of yourself and checking in with your doctors or providers just about things to expect or things that you should be aware of and also just the importance of cultural congruency and the importance of mental health and screening for postpartum depression because like you said it's very real and people are deserving of being listened to and i always enjoy the point of that you are the expert in your care you are the expert in your health you know what's going on with your body what's and what your concerns are and it's very important to feel heard by your providers so what is cultural congruency for people who what is the simple way of explaining cultural congruency for persons who might not know what cultural congruency is Cultural congruency, and this is the way I like to describe it, because it's this shift, it's a movement from, you know, cultural competency. So in the past, we've heard things like, oh, cultural competency, right? And what cultural competency is alluding to is that somebody who is competent in, well, cultural competency really alludes to being an expert, right, in a particular culture. And when I think about that dynamic of cultural competency, I, you know, many people are moving away from that term, cultural competency, towards congruency, and I'll describe what that means. Because the idea that, you know, one person can be, somebody that's not a part of your culture can be competent in a culture that is not theirs. That idea is really, um, let's just call it what it is. It doesn't make sense. It's problematic. Because it suggests that, you know, it's a, it's a finite thing whereby, you know, as long as I learn all I need to learn about this person's culture, you know, I can attain that cultural competence where I'm like, yes, I know all there is to know about this person's culture. So it assumes that there's this end point to learning about somebody's culture, and we know that that's not the case. So when we talk about cultural congruency, and this is where more people are moving towards, cultural congruency is really... Um, in the context of healthcare, it's about providing some kind of um, evidence-based care, healthcare, that aligns and agrees with the patient's or with that person's um, cultural values, with their belief system, with their um, you know practices, be it religious practices or whatever kind of practices they have. So it's about providing care to the patient that is tailored and agrees or aligns with their preferred cultural values and um, beliefs and, you know, practices. So that's what cultural congruency is. And to be honest with you, you know, that doesn't mean that, you know, you have to be of the same skin color as the person. Is as long as you have people who are willing to learn, right, learn about what's important to this person, what cultural values, what beliefs, what um, practices are important to them. And how can I, as the healthcare provider, bring those aspects into their care? 
Yeah, and I think that's a real. I thank you for the clarification in talking about cultural congruency, and I think it's also really important to talk about cultural congruency and the shift be- from cultural competency to cultural congruency because you can believe that you are competent in somebody's culture, but they might not have they might not do everything that's applicable to their culture they may do things differently and that congruency is about being willing to learn and hear people which makes it a more patient focus and centered aspect which is really important to creating better care for other people so there's this app called the earth app it was created by kimberly seals ailer spelled k-i-m-b-e-r-l-y-s-e-a-l-s A-L-L-E-R. Allows black and brown birthing persons to view and provide ratings and reviews of maternal and pediatric doctors and delivery hospitals. Why is this important? So some people during their experiences feel ignored by their providers. Things like the Earth app create the accessibility for people to see these ratings and hear about people's experiences to better craft their ability to know what providers may be a good choice for them in a journey like pregnancy or even just health in general. There's also something called the Sebastian Smile Foundation. So the Sebastian Smile Foundation helps to provide grants to families to assist them with counseling services and legal services after prenatal death. They actually also provide a scholarship opportunity for pediatric nurses to assist them in in pursuing the field. And this is really great because this is actually a a resource that is available in the DMV area, which includes Maryland, D.C., and Virginia. So knowing the ability to access resources like Sebastian Smiles Foundation or the Earth app are great for persons who may have experienced the death of a child post-birth. This may be accessible for people who also just want to have a review of what healthcare providers are like in their areas to better know who they want to potentially meet with to have a better understanding of who might provide the best care. How does racism impact maternal health? That is a million dollar question and I say it's a million dollar question because I think for a very long time there have been um, there have been discussions around this topic and not calling it out, not calling out racism for what it is has been um, as negatively impacting uh, maternal health care. But we know that now you know it's very clear that the root cause of what we see today, the root cause of the poor maternal and infant health that we see and the disparities that we see when it comes to Blacks, um, um, American Indians, Alaska Natives, because those are the groups that have the worst um, outcomes. The root cause of it is really um, racism and both structural and systemic racism. That's what's at the root cause. So when I talk about, um, you, you may even hear it used as institutional racism. So what that's referring to is the racial inequities that, that occur within different institutions and, and systems of power. So the race, you know, and when we talk about institutions and systems of power, we're talking about things like, you know, places of employment, uh, within the government, um, you know, like with Medicare, Medicaid, we're talking about education, things like that, social services. That's what we're talking about. But also this structural uh, and systemic racism can take the form of things like 
you know, different unfair policies and practices or discriminatory treatment. So that's just giving you an example. But the way I think about this is I think about this like a, a, a pyramid. So if you think about like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, at the very bottom when we are thinking about the root causes, at the very bottom, the root cause of uh, um, the structural racism and discrimination is at the base. And that's really, that's really the root cause. And that feeds into, you know, the different things that we see, such as the social determinants of health. So when we talk about social determinants of health, social determinants of health are the conditions in which people are born into, they live, they work, they age, they play. You know, those are the different conditions. And these social determinants are really shaped by, you know, how power is distributed, how money is distributed, how resources are distributed, and who has access to those things. So remember I'm talking about, you know, if you can visualize it like a pyramid. At the very base of that pyramid is structural racism and discrimination. The next level would be the social determinants of health because we know that those unfair policies and practices, structural racism and discrimination, leads to the negative social determinants of health, like who has access to those resources, right, that we talk about. So, for example, who has access to quality health care, right? That will determine, you know, the different, uh, what, how they're able to optimize their health care and how they're able to, to uh, how they're able to impact their maternal health care in a positive direction. Um, stress, I would say another thing is stress. Um, and I talk about stress in the sense of as a result of those um, structural racism and discrimination that many um, people from racial and ethnic minority communities face, the chronic stress uh, as a result of this underlying or, or this implicit and explicit biases and this direct and indirect racism really does a lot of bad things to the body, right? Um, we know that chronic stress, it disproportionately affects black women um, and it leads to poor health outcomes. You know, it, it just places this burden on your physiology. And chronic stress does to the body, like, you know, it increases your blood pressure. It can lead to, you know, different kind of, um, um, you know, it can lead to obesity. It can lead to cardiovascular diseases and things like that. So when I think about how racism impacts, you know, the, the what we see today, those are some of the ways in which it impacts what we see today. You know, and when you think about the different stresses, you know, um, some of which I already talked about, case in point, let me just give an example, is a black woman working at a job where, you know, she uh, uh, she's on her feet all day, for example, um, she's, she's pregnant, she's stressed out, um, she doesn't have time to work out or to to, to, to purchase or does not have the money to even purchase like healthy produce and things like that. You can see how the social determinants of health, which is lack of access to, um, to, to healthy produce. So she buys different things that may not be healthy for her and she eats those things and she's stressed out at her job. And so she's working all these long hours. And so all of these things are contributing factors that really um, does a number on the body. And sometimes it's, it's too late before um, folks realize it, right? So those are some things, um, I just want to make sure I'm answering the question. Those are some of the things that I would say 
you know, what, those are some of the ways that racism um, contributes to the negative um, outcomes that we see today. Yeah, thank you. I think one thing that I really like that you said was about the pyramid, the pyramid of house of what we need and also how racism is almost like a structure and that there's different levels within racism and then there's things like implicit bias and having access to quality health care and all of these things are impacted in person's health. Wow. There has been so much that I've been able to learn and I hope that you have been able to learn in the process of having this conversation regarding maternal well, mortality. Well, how about that? How's your mind feeling after that discussion? Isn't it so interesting how much we can learn in a small time? I hope you come back and join me on my next podcast for Minority Minds. I'm your host with the most, Jordan Costley. And be kind to your mind. Minority, minority, minority minds. Minority, minority, minority minds. Minds.